This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prize Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Sonia Nasario. She's author of the book Enrique's Journey, based on her Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper series. The book recounts the quest of a Honduran boy looking for his mother 11 years after she's forced to leave her starving family to find work in the United States. Often clinging to the sides and tops of freight trains, Enrique travels through hostile worlds full of thugs, bandits, and corrupt cops. But he pushes forward, relying on his wit, courage, hope, and the kindness of strangers. Enrique's journey is now required reading at hundreds of high schools and colleges across the country. Sonia Nasario was born to Argentinian parents in the United States, but after her father died, she moved with her mother to Argentina. And she says of the thousands who have fled the violence in their homelands in Central America and attempted the journey to the United States in recent years, they're often tortured and held for ransom. The survivors tell of being enslaved, working in marijuana fields, or forced into prostitution. Many are killed. Sometimes they have organs harvested in what's become an invisible, silent slaughter. Sonia Nasario is a graduate of Williams College. She has a master's degree in Latin American Studies from University of California, Berkeley and honorary doctorates from Mount St. Mary's College and Whittier College. She began her career at the Wall Street Journal, later joined the Los Angeles Times, and she's won uh, several awards for her humanitarian work. She serves on the board of Kids in Need of Defense. That's a nonprofit which provides pro bono attorneys to unaccompanied immigrant children. We're going to talk this hour about child migrants and immigration issues in general. You have an interesting uh, background, um, uh, born and raised part of the time in the U.S. to Argentinian parents. Yes, I think um, I, one reason that I focus on immigrants and is that uh, there's a lot of persecution in my background. My, my father's family fled Christian persecution in Syria in 1920 to go to Argentina uh, my father was born in Argentina, raised there. My mother, Jewish, fled uh, Poland right before World War II to go to Argentina. Those in her family who didn't leave were killed in Auschwitz. And then both of my parents came to the to the U.S., to Kansas, of all places, they settled. <laughs> and um, I'm the only one in my family born in the United States. And so I grew up uh, most of the time in Kansas and twice during my childhood in Argentina. And you, um, yeah. So uh, I guess when your when your father died, your you and your mom went uh, back to Argentina or went to Argentina back for her, I guess. Yeah, and that that was the the the, the motivation really to become a journalist. I we went back when um, I was fourteen years old, and my mother. I, you know, I speak to a lot of college campuses that use my book as a freshman read, and. Uh, often when I tell college students this, they're, they're kind of stunned, but they've been told that America is the greatest nation on earth and surely everyone wants to live here. But many immigrants would prefer to live where they are from. And my mother would say, you know, the neighbors here in this country don't really know each other. It's such a cold place. And it had little to do with her 
inability to speak English very well, but she decided when he, my father died to take us back to Argentina. Her timing was terrible. It was just as the dirty war was starting in Argentina, the military was taking power, and in the coming few years, they, they would disappear, kill 30,000 people. So when I was in high school, when I was 14, 15 years old there, I, I, I lived in terror every day because I would, the, the military would roam the streets plucking people up, and they could target you. They didn't like people with beards. They didn't like teachers or professors. In their eyes, they were all commies. They didn't like anyone who was advocating for social justice, for change. And um, I had a, a member of my family who was picked up and nearly tortured to death, a very close 16-year-old friend who was tortured to death. Um, and one day I was walking down the streets of Buenos Aires, and I saw this pool of blood on the sidewalk and asked my mom, what, ha what happened here? And she said, well, the military had killed two journalists. Why? Why would they do that, I asked her. And she said, well, those journalists, they are trying to tell the truth about what's going on here. And I, I understood in that moment, you know, that um, one reason the military was getting away with what they were doing was that people just didn't understand the magnitude of what was happening all around them. And that you cannot have a strong democracy without the fourth estate with a vibrant press that's willing to hold people in power accountable. So, you know, staring at that pool of blood, most, most, most sane human beings would make a different career choice. But uh, my nickname since I've been three years old has been La Granuja, the troublemaker. <laughs> so I decided in that instant, 14 years old, I want to be a journalist. I want to try to tell the truth. And so I've written about social, social justice issues, um, and people who don't get a lot of ink in this country, women, children, the poor, Latinos. So you decided right then, and, and, and you did it. Um, so how did you get into... I did. I, I became the, the youngest uh, reporter hired by the Wall Street Journal at 21 and started writing about social issues from that age on. And I, I've written about a whole range of issues, but I've always been drawn to writing about immigrants because of my family history, because... Growing up in two countries, I always felt like I didn't quite fit completely in either place, like I had a foot in, in two worlds. I think many immigrants uh, and even children of immigrants feel somewhat that way. So it, it's a story that has, has called me, and I, I think for better or worse, um, I have become the voice for immigrant children who come to this country alone. I have become, I have gone from uh, being, uh, going into journalism as an act of activism, uh, to be an activist with a pen, then the journalism profession rightfully beat that out of me because journalists cannot be activists. We have to be fair and objective in how we uh, find the truth. And more recently, um, I have become a voice for these kids because I feel that um, that they're not being, tre being treated fairly by this country. I wonder if you could uh, expand on that. Um, it's kind of a tension, right? Or, or feels like uh, under old-style journalism, the tension, uh, journalists should just report, uh, can help you feel, can help you empathize, but uh, th there's a line perhaps you shouldn't cross. Did you feel like you crossed that, becoming an advocate? I have definitely crossed that on the immigration issue. I, I do feel that I come at the issue in terms of pragmatic solutions, that the solutions that have been proposed by politicians both on the left and on the right in this country have failed to permanently stem the flow of migrants and keep more migrants 
in their home countries, where honestly most migrants would prefer to stay if they could. Um, and so I, I, I feel like I have proposed pragmatic, a very different solutions, really focused on what is pushing people out of Central America. Uh, right now, most people who cross our southern border without permission are coming from three countries that are among the top five most violent countries on earth. Other than Syria and Afghanistan, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala are uh, the most violent countries in the world. And uh, so as I've, I've, as I've reported about immigrant children who come to this country alone, what I'm really an expert on, um, there's been a real shift in why these kids are coming. When I first started looking at this issue 20 years ago, uh, it was looking at these single mothers who come from Mexico and Central America, and they can't feed their kids in their home countries. They can't see them study past the third grade. So they come to the U.S. and leave their children behind in their home countries, thinking that it will be a separation of one or two years and, and no more. But life here in the U.S. is a lot tougher than they think it's going to be, and these separations would stretch to five or ten years or more. And these kids, I found 20 years ago, would despair, and they would set off on their own to come find these mothers who had come before them to the United States. And that's really the story that I got into writing about, was this, this modern-day odyssey that these children make migrating from Central America. Uh, they have virtually no money, so they travel the only way they can through Mexico, gripping on to the top and sides of freight trains that travel north. Um, and I actually make this journey, uh, I spent three months on top of freight trains to tell the story of the, this mass migration of children coming north to find their mothers in the United States. Uh, so before kids were coming for these reasons, to find mothers uh, to, for a better life, fleeing abusive situations in their home countries. But in recent years, we've seen a real uh, transformation in these countries in Central America. They have become much more violent, much more dominated by uh, gangs, especially MS-13, 18th Street gangs that originated in Los Angeles, where I live, and much more uh, of a flow of drugs that are heading north to the United States and are generating a lot of this violence in these countries. And so a lot of these kids now, 10, 11-year-old boys are being recruited forcibly by gangs and narcos. You work for us, or we kill you, or we rape your 10-year-old sister, or we exterminate your whole family. And that's what's driving now this, this migration of children uh, to the north. And I believe that these children should be treated for what they are. They are refugees. They are not economic migrants. They are fleeing, in many cases, for their lives. What would you have, uh, how, would the, how would the law be different? How would the system be different if we were to treat them as refugees? Well, I, th I think to some degree um, there has been a system to treat Central American children in this way up until now. Uh, and I think that that's now uh, being threatened in the last, uh, actually, uh, several years. In 2014, we saw a real surge of these kids, uh, unaccompanied immigrant children, at our southern border. It was at the top of the headlines. Uh, we had 68,000 unaccompanied immigrant children apprehended at the southern border. And uh, I, I think there was a lot of hand-wringing about, you know, should, should we just be sending all these kids back? Right now, there's a uh, 2008 trafficking victim law that ensures that these kids must be admitted into the United States, and they have a right to a full hearing before an immigration judge to determine whether they merit being able to stay here legally or not in some cases. 
Um, but right now what we're especially seeing is an attempt to demonize these children and say uh, from, from the biggest megaphone in the country, these kids are all MS-13 gangsters, which is not true. Uh, these kids uh, should all be sent back to their home countries. They are not refugees. They're just coming here on a whim. And that's absolutely not true. If you go to some of these communities in Central America, as I have in Honduras, um, I went back to many of these communities where I started my reporting uh, 15 years ago. You see just extraordinary violence directed at boys to join the gangs, girls who are told, you're going to be the girlfriend of the gang leader in this neighborhood, or we will exterminate your whole family. Uh, in, in the neighborhood where I've spent the most time, seven in ten businesses have shut down because the gangs go to the businesses and say, you must pay a war tax or we will burn down your business and we'll kill your whole family. And when people can't pay the war tax, uh, they have to flee. And so that's why we're seeing this migration north. I just want to underline that. Uh, for, and, and, you know, it's pretty invisible to a lot of people. You know, don't think about it. This neighborhood, are you talking about Rivera Hernandez uh, in, in Honduras? Um, yes. At least in that, so, in that area, so, you, you write that gangsters, yeah. in one case, the police reported gangsters were casually playing soccer with the decapitated head of someone they'd executed. One example. That's right. And, and, and three years ago, four years ago, these gangsters would just play soccer with these heads in broad daylight. And they paid off the cops, so the cops are corrupted in many cases. And uh, what I believe is that instead of, um, you know, building 20 to $40 billion uh, walls, which don't work, 97% of people who try repeatedly to get past a wall are able to do so, studies show. Um, you can ask China. They built the mother of all walls, and it did not keep out the Mongols. Um, so we've tried border enforcement. We spend $19 billion a year now on border enforcement. Uh, we've tried guest worker programs, but the problem is that many guest workers come and they don't leave when they're supposed to. And we've tried legalization more on the center left, but which is good for migrants living in tremendous fear right now. The, the apprehensions under President Trump have gone up 40%. Uh, children in schools, their hair is falling out. Immigrant children, they're developing nervous tics, uh, crying because they're so afraid that their parents could be apprehended and deported. Um, but when you legalize people, um, they tend to tell friends and family members down south, come on up. And then the number goes up once again of people living here without permission. So what I advocate is instead of those three things we keep trying over and over again, Let's work on addressing the root causes of what is pushing people out of this neighborhood, Rivera Hernandez, where people played soccer with people's heads. The U.S. has spent $100 million a year in Honduras to try to take violence prevention programs that we pioneered in Los Angeles and in Boston that we know work. And in this neighborhood, we funded outreach centers where kids can go and get mentoring and help getting jobs and get off the streets during the day. We funded a program that goes into the schools. You identify the nine risk factors of going to gangs. If a kid has half of those, put them into a year of family counseling, and it reduces by 77% their odds of engaging in crime or abusing drugs, alcohol. And more. I think most importantly, we went after the bad guys in this neighborhood. In Honduras, I mean, in the U.S., if you commit a murder, your odds of getting caught are 50-50. Uh, not great, not bad, but in Honduras, 96% of homicides get no conviction because if you come forward as a witness, 
the gangs will kill you tomorrow. They'll leave you in the middle of the street with a, 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 a magic marker on your chest that says sapo, frog. That means frogs talk too much. As a clear message, if you talk, you're dead. So we funded a nonprofit um, that's actually uh, from the U.S. in part that goes into the worst neighborhoods and investigates all homicides and works for months with these families to convince them to testify. People testify under a black burqa like they do in mafia trials in Italy. And I watched this woman testify. They they put this black burqa on her, rubber boots, gloves on her hands, so you couldn't see a, an inch of her skin. They put her in a little closet as she enters the courtroom uh, that has a one-way mirror that has wheels on it, and they wheeled her into the courtroom and threw up one-way mirror under a black burqa, through a voice distorter, she testified. And she put away these two bad guys who had tortured and raped a girl for one week and right before murdering her, cutting her to bits, called her mother and her, let her hear her daughter's screams uh, for not paying the war tax to the gang. Uh, now, more than half of homicides in this neighborhood are getting guilty verdicts. And the result of all this is that Homicides went down 62% in the worst neighborhood, in the most violent uh, city in the world. It cut the number of kids fleeing by half. And now kids play in the street in this neighborhood. It's not nirvana, but it's way better. And that's, that's what we want to do. It's a lot cheaper to pay $100 million in Honduras to do this than to pay billions of dollars once these children arrive at our border. And it's much more humane as well. You're listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is a Pulitzer Prize winner, Sonia Nastadio. She's the author of Enrique's Journey, which recounts the quest of a Honduran boy looking for his mother 11 years after she's forced to leave her starving family to find work in the United States. We're talking about issues of child migration and immigration issues in general. We'll hear about Enrique's Journey in the next segment following this break. Next time on Philosophy Talk, the ethics of whistleblowing with Edward Snowden. If you find out that the government is engaged in illegal activity, isn't it your duty to tell? Not if I'm going to get locked up for the rest of my life, it's not. You have to choose. Protect the public or protect state secrets. Our guest is former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. The ethics of whistleblowing. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Hans Zimmer might just be Hollywood's top film composer. His music takes ordinary scenes and turns them into something otherworldly. If you saw Dunkirk or Blade Runner 2049, you know what I mean, and you'll hear how he does it. Coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board of a, uh, for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Sonia Nasario, author of the book Enrique's Journey, 
based on her Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper series. We're talking about child migration and issues of immigration in general on the program today. I want to talk about the journey, um, you, and you actually took the journey, right? Um, uh, I did. Your your I, series of articles, you won the Pulitzer, this is the L.A. Times, Enrique's Journey, turned it into a book, and it, that's now read in many schools. Um, so, uh, I'm curious, first of all, how did you come to pick, I, I, you wanted to report this story, right? How did you come to pick Enrique? Well, I wanted to show people the, the journey of a typical child coming to find his mom in the U.S., and... At the time, the average child that uh, our Border Patrol agents caught coming into the U.S. alone uh, was uh, 15 years old. Now it's 14 years old. It's gone down. Three and four kids were boys, and many were coming on top of trains. So that's what I was looking for to tell the typical story. And ideally, you know, Tom, I really wanted to start in, in Central America and migrate with the child north, but these kids are facing gangsters who control the tops of the trains. I, I would see these guys roaming from car to car, ro- knifing people, robbing them, throwing people down to the churning wheels below. They face bandits alongside the rails that rob and rape you and kill you. They face a dozen different kinds of corrupt cops that I documented that target these children as they're migrating north. And they face the train. They're getting on and off these moving freight trains as they travel north because they're crossing Mexico illegally so they can't get on you know hop on at the train station so this is an an incredible uh, journey and i realized you know i this kid's gonna be running from all these dangers and i i certainly cannot run as fast as a 15 year old boy and keep up so what i decided to do was find a boy who had made it to northern mexico hope he would make it onto his mom in the u.s and then i uh i i go back and and retrace his journey so i met enrique a true story of a boy um his mama leaves him. He's just five years old when she leaves him in Honduras to come work in the U.S. Uh, Eleven years later, desperate to be with her, he sets off to find her alone. Uh, and, by the way, there are children I heard of as young as seven years old who make this journey wow. alone across four countries. But he says, Enrique sets off on his own. And I met him in northern Mexico. He was sleeping out on the muddy banks of the Rio Grande, just struggling to survive. I spent a couple of weeks with him there as a journalist. I'm, I'm watching that misery play out so I can show my readers what it's like. And he told me everywhere he had been on eight attempts he had made to get that far. He had been deported seven times by Mexico. And then I went back to his grandma's house in Honduras, and I did the journey step by step exactly as he had done it a few weeks before. So I traveled three months on top of seven freight trains, 1,600 miles, and then to expand what was a newspaper series into a national best-selling book, I went back and uh, retraced the journey a second time for three months. And I do not recommend doing this, by the way, Tom. Uh, yeah, boy. I had many, many close calls. Uh, I had uh, I, I had a, a branch almost swipe me off the top of the train. It hit me right in my face, and um, it swiped off the boy on the car behind mine. And he, I was able to grab onto a rail on the top side of the train and pull myself back up on top to the top of the train. Uh, but he was swept off, and he probably died because as you fall down, there's this sucking wind that pulls you right into the wheels. And I had a guy try to rape me on top of the train. I was able to get away from him. Um, I, I still have post-traumatic stress from my experiences mm. um, these many years later. Um, but 
I know that because of the many advantages I had, I, I, I was going through 1% of what these kids have, go through because I had money when I got off the train. I could eat tacos. I could sleep in a motel bed in between train rides. Uh, you know, Enrique slept in, in, in sewage culverts to hide from the immigration authorities or trees to protect himself from predatory animals. If Americans think that uh, a wall will stop someone as determined as the kids that I saw, I, I think they are uh, sorely misjudging these these migrants. Mm. I want to read uh, just uh, just a couple sentences from an op-ed piece. I think this is from the New York Times. This this is um, our guest for the hour, uh, Sonia Nasario. Um, who writes, um, by the Mexican government's own accounting, 72,000 migrants have been rescued from kidnappers in recent years. Then we go on to even more stark. They are often tortured and held for ransom. The survivors tell of being enslaved, working in marijuana fields, or forced into prostitution. Many are killed. Sometimes they have organs harvested in what's become an invisible, silent slaughter. I think you're right there, invisible to, to many Americans. That's right. I mean, to the to the narco cartels, um, these migrants are, are are a business, and it's as big of a business moving human beings as moving drugs to the United States. Um, much of this misery, by the way, is being uh, the violence is being engendered because we are the largest consumer of illegal drugs on earth, and instead of trying to deal with the demand side of that, we squeeze Colombia and the problem moves to Mexico. We squeeze Mexico and the problem moves to uh, the Caribbean. We squeeze the Caribbean and then four out of five narco flights start landing in Honduras, which suddenly has the number one homicide rate in the world. So some of this is is very predictable uh, uh, and uh, a response to some of the things that the, that the United States is doing uh, in response to our so-called drug war, which has been an utter failure. Uh, so what you see is about 18,000 Central Americans are kidnapped every single year in Mexico. And harvesting of organs, when I covered the wars in Central America many decades ago, was an urban myth. But today it is a reality. You see people who wake up and their sides are stitched up and they're missing a kidney. And there are mass graves of people. Um, they found 20 just in the Mexican state of Veracruz. Some are Mexican victims, but many are Central Americans who have been prostituted, who have been enslaved. Uh, and this happens. They prefer to snatch children off those trains than cartels and the gangsters, because often the only thing that these kids carry is a little scrap of paper with their mama's phone number here in Utah. And the narcos use that scrap of paper to demand ransom from parents, three to $5,000. And if they can't pay or they won't pay, um, they cut up that child in, in front of the other people who have been held hostage to send a message, everyone must pay. This journey is brutal, and people are desperate, and that's why they're doing this. Some, some people have said, what kind of a parent would allow their child to make this journey alone through these incredible dangers? Well, it's a parent who believes that the danger at that child's doorstep back in their home country is even greater. And as one expert told me, when your house is on fire, you're going to find a way to get out no matter what it takes. Uh, and, I mean, the, the, all of this is tragic, but um, uh, another part of this is, and Enrique's story illustrates this, Enrique's mother came. I'm sure she was hoping that uh, she could 
bring him and the other kids sooner. And it became 11 years, and then he set out on a journey to, you know, because he didn't want to wait anymore. So years and years and years of separation. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think part of the problem is that when migrants come here, when they phone their friends and family back home out of pride, they tend to puff up all the good things. You know, I, I have a car. Um, you know, I make eight bucks an hour. But what they don't tell friends and family back home is I'm working two or three jobs. I'm living in a converted garage. I'm stuffed into a department with three other families. I'm struggling to pay bills here send money back to my children every month so that they can eat and study. And I have to save, and the number keeps skyrocketing. This has been one success of the crackdown on the border. The price smugglers are asking to bring kids north has nearly doubled to $10,000, $15,000 per child. So um, this is never one or two year separation. Because it's much tougher here than they envision, these separations are typically five, ten years and even more, and that's why these children despair and set off to find their moms on their own. By the way, uh, website EnriquesJourney.com, you can you can uh, see all about uh, this uh, compelling story, um, and uh, you do updates. And it, it was interesting to me, uh, kind of sad to learn that Enrique, uh, he he made it right, he got married, had some kids. It hasn't he been did. hasn't been yep. an easy life though. No, you know uh, he he. Ha- he started sniffing glue when he was very young, nine, ten years old, to fill that 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 void of not having his mother there to numb his pain. And he swore when he crossed the border that he would leave drugs behind. And you know, I, I do understand it's a disease. Uh, I don't condone it in any way, but he has struggled off, on and off with these issues. Um, some students who read this book and I had a group come from um, a high school in, in Utah today to one of my talks. Um, and uh, I, I've been to Logan, I've been to speak in Provo, and I, so I know that um, many students are reading this book in Utah. And, you know, they come up to me and they say, you know, I, I came alone and I, my mother left me and I'm going to be an engineer and I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to be a lawyer. Why didn't you tell my story? And I think the reality is that you know, there's, there's everything among these kids. They've been through a lot of trauma in their home country, on the journey north, and now here in the United States. I, I, I know that Utah has been a much more welcoming uh, state than many states that I go to. Um, and a shout-out to people in Utah for, for, for being welcoming of the stranger. Um, but, you know, I think there is still enormous hostility that we're seeing uh, and that it's okay to express this hostility now. It's, it's been given license. And so I think um, a lot of these kids are, are, are facing um, these, these difficulties. But they say to me, why didn't, why didn't you tell a, more po- a story with a more positive ending? Some of these kids have what, what's called post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress. So it's kind of like the Kelly Clarkson song, you know, what, what doesn't, I won't break out into what, what doesn't <laughs> kill you makes you stronger. Uh, but I think for a lot of these kids, and I think in my life, what, the things that have really traumatized me, that have um, hit me, have really forced me to get up and try over and over again. So I think you see the range with these kids of how they're doing. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we have with us for the hour, Sonia Nasario. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning author of the book Enrique's Journey. We'll have more following this break.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Wasserman Festival presenting pianist Kevin Kenner performing works by Chopin and Pedereski on Wednesday, April 11th at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Tickets at arts.usu.edu. When a Border Patrol agent died last year, President Trump seized on it, saying it was more proof that the U.S. needs a border wall. The FBI investigated and found no evidence of a crime. I'm sure they were under enormous pressure to try to produce something to fit what the president was saying, but they had to give us that they had nothing. I'm Elsa Chang, the story behind a death on the border, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith and Edom on Utah Public Radio. This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Sonia Nasario. She's winner of the Pulitzer Prize for a uh, newspaper series, which uh, she then turned into a book, Enrique's Journey. And we're talking about issues of child migration and immigration issues in general on the program today. We've uh, talked a bit about this before. I want to underline this. And this is a significant statement that I read in a previous interview uh, you say, you can't do something about immigration until you understand who is coming and why. So at this moment in time in immigration, who who is coming and why? Well, I think people have, uh, you know, I, I find many misconceptions. When I go to colleges, students say, well, why don't they just come here legally? And I I think many students and others don't understand that for a poor schmuck from Honduras, there's no way the U.S. government is going to give you a visa. You have to show that you have uh, a lot of assets that you're going to come here and return with, uh, to your home country with a visa. If you have, the only way to come here legally often is if you have a family member who's already a citizen and can send for you, and often that takes 10 or 20 uh, years. Um, I think people feel that there's still this huge rush across the border um, today we're at a 46-year low in terms of the number of migrants crossing our southern border. We've gone from 1.6 million being apprehended in 2000 to about 300, 400,000 today. So I think a lot of the hostility is kind of a reaction to what happened in 1990 to 2010 when we did see the largest wave of immigration in our nation's history, 27 million people who came here legally and not during those two decades. Uh, but today we're at a very low point in those coming, and they're not coming from Mexico. More Mexicans are leaving than are coming here. They're mostly coming, 53% are coming from these three supremely violent Central American countries. And in surveys done by the United Nations of children fleeing north, they find that the primary driver for leaving is this violence pushing them out. It's not that they're coming here as economic migrants for a better life. It, they're coming because someone is trying to kill them back home, and they're trying to get out of Dodge ahead of um, of, of that happening. So, uh, when when you when you see that the primary driver for people coming here is really the violence pushing people out of these very few countries, you realize that 
that's what you have to address if you truly want to reduce the flow of people coming here unlawfully. You mentioned that, that history the last couple of decades. Um, of, and I was reading elsewhere, you explaining that for a long time, migrants would go to just a handful of states. That changed. And some states started receiving immigrants. Uh, they hadn't done that before. And, and, and you explained that uh, attitudes, it's kind of a pendulum, swings one way or the other, kind of centers out. But at the federal level, that pendulum has just kept swinging to the right and continues under President Obama or President uh, Trump. Yeah, and I think that's been baffling to a lot of people in some ways because traditionally uh, when the economy goes south, people get really annoyed at immigrants. And as the economy improves, uh, then this issue tends to recede. And we have seen that change on the state level. We have seen in many states, um, and certainly Utah is among them, uh, passing in-state tuition for children who are undocumented, passing driver's licenses, passing even uh, uh, grants for undocumented children to go to school in about six states. So that pendulum has swung more to the middle on the state and local level. But on the federal level, perhaps because this economy has not, the recovery has not been like other recoveries. It has not been as robust. Many of the jobs generated have, have been more um, lower paying jobs. Uh, maybe because um, there are those out there who are really giving voice to um, this hostility and xenophobia, maybe because there are, I, I, there are some legitimate concerns about uh, migrants coming here. Overall, this is a positive for our economy. But if you're, um, if you're a person, one in 14 Americans who don't have a high school degree, who are being forced to compete in certain industries with recent migrant arrivals, You've seen your wages drop by about 4% over 20 years. You are being forced to compete. If you're in a construction crew here in Utah, many um, one in um, five construction workers here is an immigrant. Um, what if that crew, uh, you're an immigrant crew and you're charging a third less and you're willing to work a lot harder because you have to. you got kids at home relying on that paycheck in your home countries. So you're undercutting that uh, that American construction crew. So I understand the concerns of many Americans uh, in terms of uh, this wave of immigration that we saw in those 20 years that I described. But um, I, I think here in, in Utah, you've seen many of those demographic changes. One in 12 people here is foreign born now. Another one in 12 people have uh, an immigrant parent. One in 10 kids, K through 12 now, is uh, has an undocumented parent. And those kids are living in tremendous fear because as uh, apprehensions have gone up 40% under President Trump, they fear that their parent could be pulled over for a broken taillight, their, their business could be raided, and that parent will disappear on them again. And we're seeing more and more of these kids ending up in our foster care system. Um, speaking of that, uh, uh, I was looking at your Twitter feed, which is at uh, SL Nasario. Uh, one of the, one of the recent tweets. I'll just read this: Frequent ice raids of Greyhound buses has ACLU asking the company not to be quote an enabler of constitutional violations end quote. That's part of this I would have I would never have thought of. Yeah, I mean we're seeing ICE use Facebook uh, and where people are logging on to Facebook. Uh, many immigrants change their phones. You know they use these cheap phones and change them every six months, but they're always on Facebook. So they're using uh, the back end of Facebook to to try to track down uh, immigrants that they're 
uh, trying to apprehend. So, um, so uh, you know, I'm glad that Utah has been uh, really welcoming and the Utah Compact really set the stage nationwide for businesses, law enforcement, and religious leaders working together and saying, you know, we're going to try to deal with these folks on a humane level. I was a little stunned by Romney's uh, recent comments saying, you know, let's just deport all of these dreamers. Uh, let's, uh, uh, I'm to the right of uh, Donald Trump on all of these issues. It, it sounded very out of left field, uh, given what I know about uh, many people in Utah and their treatment of immigrants. Um, I wonder, another argument uh, in, that I've heard in favor of uh, clamping down is, is violent crime. And, uh, you know, the, the, the proponents of, of cracking down on illegal immigration say that uh, some illegal immigrants commit violent crime. Uh, those that we're able to prevent from coming into the country, at least we've, we've, we've saved the country that pain. Um, some in any group commit violent crimes. Virtually every study done shows that immigrants, are less likely to commit crimes than people born in this country. If you're an immigrant and you're trying to do everything in your power, if you don't have uh, papers, if you're not here legally, to not flag yourself to the uh, authorities because the consequences of being uh, apprehended are catastrophic. Uh, you're going to be torn away from your children. You're going to be deported away from your children who you may never see again or your uh, wife or your partner. So virtually every study shows that immigrants are much less likely to commit crimes than people born here. One narrative that has really troubled me that's coming from this administration, uh, from President Trump, from Attorney General Jeff Sessions, is that these kids coming here alone are are all MS-13 gangsters. This has been the drumbeat. And we know, you know, in war, first you demonize, uh, you dehumanize, and then you attack. Uh, the administration's number two um, immigration official testified before Congress that of 250,000 of these immigrant kids who have come here alone since 2014, 56 are suspected or confirmed MS-13 gangsters. It is minuscule. And I think there is a, is a, a drumbeat, there is an effort to portray all immigrants as criminals, and it's simply uh, alternative facts. It is not correct. And I think we should all push back against that. Uh, obviously, there are people who commit crimes in any group, but it's much lower than among people here um, who are born here. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Dreamers. And I was reading uh, an interview uh, where you say you're a little pessimistic. You, you say you think that immigration has become a wedge issue and therefore it may not get solved because both sides like to use it as a, you know, a, a chip in the game. Yeah, I mean, here in uh, Utah, uh, 75% of the uh, population has said in an October 2017 poll that it, they oppose uh, deporting these these dreamers. Um, and, you know, I've been talking about dreamers for 15 years uh, around the country Virtually every audience that I talk to, when you when you say, you know, these kids, the average age when they, they were brought to this country by their parents illegally was they were six years old, and the parents broke the law. That six year old had no uh, no, you know, they had no role in making that decision. They were following what their parent told them to do. Um, 
blaming that child for the action of their parent is, is in my mind, immoral. It is un-American. Uh, it's as if you said, well, that parent robbed a bank and we're going to put that kid in prison for their whole life by not allowing them to, in some states, you can't even go to college if you're undocumented. You can't get grants to go to college. You can't get in-state tuition. You certainly can't get a job in the above-ground economy once you graduate from that college. I think that's just fundamentally unfair, and I think most Americans and most people in Utah have come uh, to to that realization. So if there's anything that could pass in Congress, this would be it, legalizing these kids and providing them a pathway uh, to citizenship. But as a friend who's the former president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association told me, um, this is a wedge issue. Uh, immigration that's used to mobilize the base on both sides politically, the left and right, and wedge issues don't get resolved. They get used to get people hot under the collar to get them to the polls. And so I fear that these kids are basically going to be left in limbo for many years to come, unfortunately. I want to ask you about um, uh, President Trump uh, put forward as he was negotiating uh, a month or so ago about immigration. He had a, I think he had four pillars. One was the wall. can't remember all of them, but one of them was a uh, uh, move to more merit-based immigration and an end to chain migration. I wonder what you think about those two of, of his pillars. Um, I don't have a problem with evaluating uh, what the mix should be between merit-based and family-based migration. If you look at Canada, if you look at Australia, they are much more of a merit-based model where you look at, uh, you, you assign points uh, as to who you allow into this country legally based on them having a certain level of education and a certain um, um, assets and, um, and certain things that we think will benefit our society. We are a creative economy. We're not a we're not the same economy today as we were 100 years ago when Ellis Island was open for business. Uh, unlike those two countries, we allow two-thirds of our legal migration. We let in about a million people a year, or let them in or allow them to become permanent residents. And two-thirds of that is based upon uh, already having a family member in this country who is a citizen and, and sends for you um, or is a permanent resident and sends for you uh, legally, which, by the way, can take 10, 20 years, depending on where they, they are sending for you from. Um, I, I, you know, my concern is that if we move too much in a merit-based way, that you're going to be um, leaving out uh, certain people from certain economic groups. Uh, you're going to be favoring certain countries, like we did before, certain European countries, and it will be to the detriment of other countries, Latin America and Africa. And I, I think a lot of the uh, strength of America comes from its diversity, from people who come here and look at things from outside the box. There's a reason that uh, most of our, our Nobel laureates that are uh, from this country came here as immigrants. Uh, they look at things from a different perspective. And I, I think that there's a benefit to, to having both. Canada is now looking at their merit-based system and saying, well, we don't have enough um, blue-collar workers to do certain kinds of jobs that Canadians don't want to do. So I think this is certainly something that we can look at. Um, what should that balance be? Is it in the right place? But my fear is that Republicans want to move uh, wholesale into merit-based uh, legal migration, 
and that their real uh, idea is to cut legal migration overall, that they're looking to cut it by about 40% as part of their proposals. Uh, they, much, of, much of the campaign was we want to reduce uh, unlawful migration, but the reality is that now they want to reduce legal migration as well. And I know that here, especially in Utah, there is strong support for legal migration. And I think that it's many of these immigrants who have come to the United States. It's that grit. It's that determination. It's that kid that I saw who had lost his leg to the freight train. These kids lose arms and legs to that freight train. They call it la bestia, the beast. And um, he got back up on that train weeks after losing his leg, determined to reach the United States. It's that get up and go, that ganas, as we Latinos say, that I think has really lifted up this country and has brought many huge benefits to that country. So I, I don't want to lose that diversity, economic, uh, international, where people come from, uh, that we have had. Just a, a few minutes left here. Uh, I wonder what reaction you get from from the kids. There are many kids... Uh, and from the perspective of some of them, they have to read your book, right? It's assigned. Um, yeah. What uh, what kind of reaction uh, do you get? Do you get uh, kids going in with one point of view and come out uh, with their minds changed? Yes. Uh, so the most typical reaction, uh, about 100 universities, some of them large ones, Michigan State, University of Wisconsin, Georgia State, Missouri State, have had all their incoming freshmen read my book. And what I get every other day are these emails. Uh, usually they go the same way. I was forced, usually forced is in capital letters, to read your friggin' book. Uh, and then their tone softens, and they say, uh, I was raised racist. I was raised anti-immigrant. I was taught to hate all immigrants by my parents. I don't know an immigrant, but that's what I was taught. You put me in the shoes of a migrant. And it changed my perspective. And many of these kids go on, and they've gone to Central America and Mexico and built water systems and schools and homes for single mothers, and they're lobbying for changes in laws here. And they're doing these incredible things. I, I was just at Penn State last week. I had a kid come up to me and say, I, I was forced to read your book at Loyola University in Chicago a few years ago where I was undergrad. I was going to become a Border Patrol agent. I, I don't have anything against Border Patrol agents. I think they do uh, their job. Uh, but he said, I, I heard you speak. I read your book. And it changed what I was going to do with my life. I could no longer do that. I'm here now at Penn State getting my graduate degree. It changed the course of my life. I probably had a half dozen kids come up to me um, years after hearing me speak. They come to another talk and they say, you know, I, I, I talk about the need for lawyers to represent immigrant children in immigration court. Uh, if you if you murder someone or you commit a crime in the U.S. and you can't afford a lawyer, you don't go to court alone. You're assigned a public defender when the stakes are so high. But immigrants, even children, aren't entitled to that. So about half of these kids who come here alone go before that immigration judge with no one to help them make their case, their legal case for asylum. They're asked to fill out dozens of forms in English and, uh, and uh, you know, get expert witnesses and get re police reports from countries, four countries away, all, all things that a seven-year-old can easily do, right? So um, they, 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 um, I, I am on the board of a nonprofit called Kids in Need of Defense, 
that was started by Microsoft and Angelina Jolie. And in the 10 years we've existed, we've recruited about 30,000 pro bono lawyers across this great country to represent these kids for free. And kids hear me talking about this, and they decide in that instant, I'm going to become a lawyer, and I'm going to represent these kids. And they come back to me years later and say, I went to law school, and now I'm doing that work that you told me was so important. So it's incredibly, I, I mean, it's very depressing on some levels to see what's going on on this issue and just the hate, so much hate being spewed. Um, there are really, uh, uh, there's a real debate here on the immigration issue, especially when it comes to economic migrants. Uh, but this hate that's being spewed, and to me, uh, that's, it's such a motivator. It just keeps me going to hear these kids' stories of how it's changed their perspective and the great things that they're doing now to try to make this world a better place. Uh, by the way, uh, supportkind.org, right? The, the acronym Kids in Need of Defense turns out to be KIND, so supportkind.org is the website right. for the organization. Uh, just one more uh, question. Um, of everything that uh, that, I, that I read, reading in interviews, reading uh, from the book, preparing for this interview, uh, one of the things that stuck with me the most was this, this story of you on the train, and you're retracing Enrique's journey, and you say the migrants uh, going through Chiapas is just a living hell, but uh, you, if you can make it to Veracruz, the, some of the villages people will come out and smile at you and throw food at you, uh, to you, uh, just, you know, night and day, um, depends on what people want to do. And I think of so many people in Utah as those uh, food throwers that I saw in uh, the south-central state of Mexico, Veracruz. And when kids go through southern Mexico, it is the heart of darkness. Most are robbed, beaten, even raped once or many times before getting through that first day. But in the south-central state of Veracruz, when people in these little towns, they hear this whistle of the train, and I would see... Uh, dozens of people rush out of these very humble huts with bundles of food in their arms, and they'd start waving and shouting and smiling and uh, crying out to these people on top of the train. And they threw bread or tortillas or sandwiches or bottles with coffee or bottles of water, and if they didn't have anything, I'd watch them line up next to the tracks, put their hands together, and they would say a silent prayer for these migrants as they pass by. These Mexicans who live along the tracks are the poorest. They make a dollar a day. And th these folks could barely feed their kids. But they were giving to these strangers from other lands who they're never going to see again. They pass by in a flash. And all of them told me, Sonia, I'm doing this because it's the Christian thing to do. It's the right thing to do. I'm sure this is what Jesus would do if he were standing right here in my shoes. And I, I saw this woman, uh, I think one of the people who most moved me was Maria. Her, her hands were gnarled with age, but she'd forced them to make these little bags with tortillas, beans, salsa. And when she heard that whistle, she would um, voice these all on her 70-year-old daughter. And her 70-year-old daughter, Soledad, would go racing down this rocky slope and heave these bags up to the waiting hands on top of the train. And Maria told me that that day something I'll never forget. If I have one tortilla, I will give half away. I know that God will bring me more. I have never seen people live their faith like this. And I think they are an inspiration 
to all of us to love more than hate. Well, on the very helpful note, that's uh, that's uh, end of our time, so a good place to end it. Uh, Sonia Nasario, um, author of Enrique's Journey, uh, which is uh, taken from uh, her reporting um, in the Los Angeles Times, and uh, she won the Pulitzer for, for those series of reports, and uh, she's become an advocate for uh, migrant children um, recently on the University of Utah campus uh, giving a presentation. Sonia Nasario, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Delighted to be with you. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.